kings, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this, and here's why. Because Gibeon was an important city, one, like one of the royal cities, two. It was larger than I, three, and all its men were good fighters, four. This was threatening to them that uh, these these, uh, people of Gideon would break allegiance. So in verse 3, Adonai Zedek calls together these other four kings. In verse 5, he says to them, Come up and help me attack Gibeon, because it has made a peace treaty with Joshua and the Israelites. So he's concerned. This is a a mighty army here that he has to deal with. In verse 6, these five kings have now joined forces, so that partway through verse 5 there you see they moved up with all their troops, and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. Verse 6, the Gibeonites then call for Joshua for help, and this is what they say. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men, And then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So I need to stop here and and just make uh, some comments here. At first glance, uh, this alignment of these five kings can sound very, very threatening. But this this is actually going to work to Israel's advantage. Because now, instead of having to take on five kings, fortify cities in in five different campaigns, they can deal with all these guys at once. And and if God's fighting with you, then what does it matter how many you take on at once? You might as well just go for it, right? And so I think there's a valuable application right there that in the battles that you're facing, at at first glance, you, you may be tempted to say, can any more go wrong? Can any more come against us, right? As if the the, uh, difficulties are joining forces against you and they attack you at once. We have a way of saying that that, uh, problems come in threes. But what we need to understand when we hear this stuff is the greater the challenges we face, the greater the opportunity to see God's glory. Is anybody glad for that this morning? You better believe it. The second thing I need to point out, again here, if you remember last week, I mentioned Joshua's integrity because these people who are calling for help from Gibeon are the same people who deceived Joshua in, in making a treaty last week. They told him they, they were from a foreign land. You know, They dressed in old rags and brought moldy bread and said, see, we've traveled from a long way. So Joshua could have said to them, you know, I'm not going to move too quick on this one. He may have, you know, drug his feet just a little bit and thought, you know, you got yourselves into this mess, you deal with it, but he doesn't. Instead, he immediately, under the direction of the Lord, that's very important because we've seen twice in our study that he's moved without the direction of the Lord, but in the direction of the Lord, he goes and he helps them. So I see three applications right here alone, okay? The first one is this. Even though you may have forgiven somebody, now think about people you've forgiven in your life, people who have betrayed you, people who have deceived you, okay, and you, you know you've forgiven them, but if they called you for help, how quickly might you respond? You know, might you think, ah, this is my chance to get even. This is the opportunity for you to get what you deserve. I'm going to just leave this one alone for a little while, right? Can you relate here? 
But what was going on with Joshua is even though he'd been deceived, see, the whole world's watching him, and stories of their victories are traveling everywhere. So he knew that whatever he did, word of that would travel the world, and so what he chose to do is send a message to the world. And, and, I, and mind you, that wasn't his motivation at all. His motivation was, I'm going to honor my promises to God. But what happened is he sent... A, a message to the world that if I make a promise before my God, I'm going to follow through with that, even if it means coming to the aid of someone who, you know, deceived me. Yeah, I think that's very, very valuable, and I think it challenges us. Applications 2 and 3 here work together very well, okay? Because if you remember early on in our study, I was emphasizing that Joshua is a type of Christ. His name, Yahushua, okay? Same name that translates uh, Jesus, okay? It means Jehovah is Savior. And so in your time of need, Call on Yahushua, Jehovah is Savior. And there's actually two applications right here. Number one, if you've been doing life without God, and suddenly God makes himself aware to you, makes his presence aware, creates an awareness of his presence with you, and suddenly you realize the path you're on isn't the path of life, but it's the path of destruction, call on the name of the Lord and be saved okay that's one application the second application if you're a christ follower and if you find yourself in a situation that's bigger than you you can't handle it on your on your own call on the name of yahushua jehovah is savior good stuff right there okay let's go on in our text verse 9 after an all-night march from Gilgal, the Gilgal, you remember, is where all the women and children are camped out. It's their settlement. It's 23 miles away from Gibeon. Okay, so all night they travel. They take these kings by surprise. The Lord throws these kings into, and, their, and their armies into confusion before Israel. So you see there the Lord's fighting for them. And it says, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. And now in verse 11, all these armies are starting to flee. So the Lord began to hurl large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the, the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord. So Joshua's praying right here. Joshua is exercising his authority in the kingdom. He's using the signet ring that God has placed on his finger, and he's using that authority as he prays to God. He says to the Lord, uh, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and I, I need to back up and just show you this that's in quotation marks right here, where he says, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. That's from a collection of songs that celebrate the victories of the Lord that's mentioned two times in the Bible. The other time is in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 1, and we'll read about this in just a moment, the book of Jashar. And uh, so that's a direct quote right there, so it's, it's very poetic, and he's saying, so the sun... Verse 13, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped 
till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in, and here's that book, the book of Jashar. We don't actually have that book, but it's referred to two times in scriptures. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Wow. Uh, God listens to people when they pray, but in, in this kind of capacity, that's what this is talking about. Wow, there's some mind-blowing stuff going on here. I mean, this miracle of deadly hailstones only hitting the enemy, you know, that's hard to fathom, but not nearly as hard to fathom as this idea that's suggested here of the sun stopping. I mean, what are we supposed to do with this? Joshua needed more daylight in order to finish conquering this enemy, so he prays, ordering the sun to stop and the moon to stop, and they do. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? Especially when we're teaching the Bible and this book as a historical book of the Bible, when we're teaching this as historical fact. And I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you that skeptics love to point out stuff like this right here because the first thing a doubter is going to do is they're going to look at this and laugh because, yeah, right, the sun stopped. I mean, come on, we've proven a long time ago that it's the earth that rotates around the sun and not vice versa. What is going on here? You know, we agree. Yeah, the earth rotates around the sun. That's that's observable. But please don't let the language that's used right here throw you off. It's not intended to be literal in the sense that today we still have expressions, don't we, of sunrise and sunset. I mean, doesn't that indicate that the sun is moving in its course, right? So don't let that throw you off. And, and get this, this business of extended daylight. I mean, stayed up there in the center of the sky. Chloe and I, uh, when she turned 12, uh, it was my goal to take each of our children somewhere in the world. And Chloe and I went to Moscow to bring medical supplies to hospitals in, in Russia, right? And we were there in July, and literally all day long, all night long, the sun just made tiny little circles up there in the sky. Sun never set. So if you need to experience something like that, just travel north where, where the sun is there all night long. Kind of took on a hazy glaze at night. I don't know what was with that, but I was just fascinated. Wow, there it is. It's, it's not going down. But what it boils down to is simply this. How do you explain a miracle? How do you do it? Right? The, Jeremiah thirty two seventeen. God asked this question. I, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? What's the Lord saying right there? Well, it's rhetorical because he wants us to understand there is absolutely nothing that's too difficult for him. Even if he needs to sustain the daylight in order to help you win a battle, God will do it. What what is it we try to gain by trying to explain miracles away? Are we trying to prove that we're smarter than God? Are we trying to prove that we're smarter than people who who believe in God? But the the greater thing for me is this. If God is truly God, then why would we ever want to place limits on him? And, and, and there are those who say they believe in God, yet they seem to be on a mission to dis- disprove 
all of the miracles. We could call it an anthropomorphic view of God that says, in my observation, man is limited, therefore God must be limited too. But I love this quote from Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, this isn't directly, this is the gist of his quote. But the mind that asks for a miracle-less Christianity is a mind in process of relapsing from true Christianity to just another dead religion. I believe in a God of miracles. Does anybody here believe in a God of miracles? Yeah, thank you, Lord. No limits on God. But one of the things skeptics like to point out, they like to point out and make fun of this idea of the earth suddenly standing still. All right, now, now get this. The earth at its axis moves just under 1,000 miles per hour. Okay, so we're moving at a, quite a clip right now. If the earth were to suddenly come to a stop, guess what would happen to you and me? <laughs> yeah, we'd keep traveling at 1,000 miles per hour, right? So just look around the room and imagine all the things you could possibly run into or that might run into you if the earth suddenly came to a stop. And this is a problem, right? We'd all go crashing if the earth suddenly stopped as it's traveling 1,000 miles per hour. But the verb usage that's used here doesn't necessarily suggest that it was a sudden stop at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. I believe that God could have stopped the earth suddenly and held everything in place if he wanted to, right? That, that's definitely not too big for him. However, consider this. Let's say that God decided to slow the earth down and took six hours to bring it to a stop. Okay, To bring the earth to a complete stop in six hours would be equivalent to driving in your car 60 miles per hour and taking 20 minutes to come to a complete stop. Now, that would really frustrate me. And if, I, if I'm getting off the highway at I-25 and I'm behind you and it's going to take you 20 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, there would hardly be any inertia at all. You would hardly feel the effects if the earth were to stop that, that slowly. Well, let's, let's do this. Let's consider God stopping the world in eight minutes. Okay, that would be equivalent to a car traveling at 60 miles per hour and taking 30 seconds to stop. Still a pretty slow stop right here, right? All I'm doing here is suggesting that there's nothing in this passage that emphatically declares that God brought the earth to a screeching halt. But if God wanted to, yeah, let him do it. Yeah, he can hold us all in. Like we're all buckled in with seatbelts and everything is good because God is in control. But here's the greater reality. The greater reality is this. How big is your God? And when I read stuff like this, I just want to sing, you know, verses like Jeremiah 32, 7, where it says, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Great and mighty God, awesome in power. Nothing, nothing absolutely nothing, nothing is too difficult for thee. And if God wants to stop the world, then who am I to doubt that reality? Huh? I believe in a big God. Well, someone then would argue and say, well, why bother to bring the earth to a complete stop? Why bother to, to, to prolong a day? Why not just 
speed up wiping, wiping out the enemy, right? Take those hellstones and just wipe them all out. Well, you know, God is a God of infinite creativity. And there's another book where God talks about wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah in a very similar way. So if in this place he says, hey, this time I'm going to slow things down so that you can get the victory, it just shows how creative he is. I was at opening day Friday of the Rockies. And it was an exciting day out there, and I just was looking at all the faces in the crowd, and I didn't see any two alike. I love God's creative potential. In fact, why don't you just take a minute, look at the person next to you, and just say, there's no one just like you. Yeah, do that. Awesome. What are you saying out there? Man, some of you, I just give you, you know, five words, and boy, there it goes. <laughs> no limit to words. It's awesome. I love it. Infinite creativity. God can do whatever he wants, and I just say, hallelujah. So the Lord wins this battle for Joshua and Israel. In verse 16, these five kings now are running for their lives. They find this cave that they can hide in. Uh, one of Joshua's soldiers spots these kings running off to hide. So Joshua's kind of busy fighting this war, chasing after all these soldiers who are running away. So he, he orders those soldiers to seal up that cave and then post a couple of guys to guard it until the battle's over, and they will deal with them later. But this was a very strategic victory. These were mighty cities, mighty armies, mighty kings. By taking these five at once, Joshua is dividing northern kingdom northern canaan from from southern canaan this is going to make the rest of israel's advances very 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 simple so if you read uh, the rest of chapter 10 starting with verse 29 what you'll see there is a summary of israel's conquest of the southern cities if you move on to chapter 11 verses 1 through 15 you will find there a conquest of the northern kingdoms in chapter, uh, well, at the end of chapter 11, he will then summarize all of his victories, and then going into chapter 12, there will be a summary of all the defeated kings that the nation of Israel took on. In chapter 13, uh, you begin to see more summary of victories, but you will also begin to see how the nation of Israel now, no longer the nation, the, 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 the no longer Canaan, will be divided among the 12 tribes where God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled and they will partake of the inheritance that was promised to Abraham, that was promised uh, to Moses. This is a great, great, great place of victory. But what I want to point out here and just spend a few minutes talking about is verse 14. Okay, chapter 10, verse 14. Second half of the verse, I just want you to notice this. It says... <clears throat> Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Awesome. Then go down to verse 42, partway through the verse there, and notice this. The Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. It gives you the impression the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and the people went back to their primary outpost, and they rested from war. 
You know, there are those who don't believe in God at all. There are those who believe in God, but they, they believe that maybe he created this planet and then he either died or he just kind of pulled his hands back and just said, I'm going to let it play out as it will. But the Bible teaches us something else. If you, if you read the Bible, you need to grasp this. Because what the Bible should show us and remind us of is that God is alive and that he's actively involved and making a difference in the lives of anyone who will put their trust in him. I love what Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said in one of his Christmas songs. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. I love what Benjamin Franklin said in his request for prayers at the Constitutional Convention. It goes like this. I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Friends, we've got to develop as top priority a consciousness. Yes, God is present with us. Yes, God is active at all times, that he's active in all places, and that he's interested in the tiniest details of your life. God is concerned about the things that you worry about. God is concerned about the stuff that trips you up. Do you have God's phone number? I want you to read God's phone number with me. It's Jeremiah 33.3. I think we have it up here. Let's read it together. Call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. I want you to read with me Psalm 91, verse 15. Okay, now it's starting off talking about our relationship with God. This is God's voice as we start off. Okay, let's read it together. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. Amen? Now I want you to stand with me, and we're going to read together Psalm 46. The whole psalm, I've put this together in a uh, responsive reading. You read the parts that say all, and I'll read the parts that say leader, but I'll join you as well. Let's read together. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. God is within her. She will not fail. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Ah. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. 
He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Is anybody glad for that today? Yeah. When you're praying and you can't hear what he's saying, just know that he is with you. When you're paying the bills, April 15th is coming up soon, right? And you don't know what you're going to do, how you're going to make it. God is with you, and he's provider. When you're in the midst of some important decision, and you're not sure what to do, God promises to give you wisdom. God is with you. When you're backed in a corner, and you feel like forces have joined together against you, you are not alone. God is with you. He's your refuge. When you want to run away, He's with you. He's your strength when you don't feel strong enough to fight the battles that you're facing. All right? He's your strength. He is an ever-present help of time of need. God is with you. Yeah. But when I was serving communion today, a number of years ago, I had to adjust how I said it because Jesus said, this is the blood that was shed for you and for many. I way prefer to say, this is the blood that was shed for you and for all. Because it's fun to, to hear these promises and to claim these promises, but they only apply to those who are in a relationship with God. If you're in relationship with God, thank the Lord. If you're not in relationship with God, come home. You are created for his pleasure. Yeah. It's for his pleasure he created all things. And he just wants you to put yourself in his hands so that you can see his glory displayed as he takes you and together with you and your will begins to fashion you into a testament to the world that's wondering. A testament of his glory. Believe. Come home. If you're a believer, press on. You're not alone. God is with you. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Your promises are sure. And if there's a day that we need these promises, it's today. I don't know who sent out the little blurb about a super volcano that's about to explode north of us. It doesn't matter. Let 